We come back to our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we are in chapter 7. We will consider the last section of the Sermon, and then there is a commentary made about the preaching of the Lord. So, the Sermon today will come from verse 24 of chapter 7 to verse 27, but let's read from verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. This is God's word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when, he, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As far the reading of God's word, may it please him to add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of the word. Let's ask God for help once. Oh, Heavenly Father, all of us are like grass. All our glory is like the flowers of the field. At their best, O oh Lord, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fall. But your word, O oh God, abides forever. And it is to you that we come concerning your word. We pray, O oh Lord, please open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your law. Yes, indeed, open our hearts that our hearts of stone may be banished, and in that place we may have hearts of flesh that delight in your word. May it be, O Lord, that as we leave this place in a short while, it will be true of all of us as we say, O oh, how we love your Lord. It is our meditation all day long. So kindly grant us clarity into your words. Unplug our ears, remove the scales from our eyes, 
we humbly ask this, trusting and trusting only in the merits of your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are portions of scripture that we've heard from over and over and over again that as we come to them, we easily approach them with some subconscious, contemptuous familiarity. This is one of those. I mean, from nursery school days, in English and in mother tongue, we may have sung songs about Matthew 7, 24 to 27. The wise man built his house upon a rock and we sang and we, and uh, if you come from where my in-laws come from, maybe you sang Bakia, Nyumbamwei, and whatever else they would sing and and I don't know in your tribe which, which version it was. This is one of those that we may be very familiar with. But even the story of Noah and the flood, what we have here is a very, very solemn conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a very, in the words of Augustine, a very unsoothing end of the sermon. In fact, the sermon ends with the word great, megas, referring to how uh, great the fall of the house built on sand is. So I'd like to kindly request that as we come to this concluding portion of the Lord's sermon, on the mount, let's not approach it with a contemptuous uh, familiarity. I have three points today. I've been a good student of Pastor Dominic. I've stopped being a six-point Calvinist. I have three points today. My next goal is to preach as short as he preaches. Three points. And uh, so we will look at the context. What's the focus of the context? Then we will ask ourselves, what's the comparison and the contrast of the two hearers? One described as foolish, the other described as wise. And then we will look at two events, actually one event with two consequences. So there is a correction there we will ask ourselves, do you see one event that has two consequences? And hopefully, as we go along, you will be asking yourself, and I will be asking myself, are you, are you a wise or a foolish hearer? Let's then look at our first point. What is the focus in this context? Let's read verse 24 and 26 again, and I've tried to highlight in different colors so that you see the parallelism in uh, these two verses. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Let's observe a few things. First of all, the address is to everyone. Verse 24 opens with everyone. In other words, anyone or whosoever or whoever. This is an adjective describing the totality of the collection. And then you'd notice after the words everyone, there is the use of the word then. Some translations would actually start with therefore everyone. The ESV says everyone then. Then could be also therefore. Everyone therefore who hears these words. This is a conjunction. A conjunction that indicates results or consequences, as in, consequently, everyone who hears these words is, is what we have being communicated here, or accordingly, everyone who hears these words is what the Lord is saying. Here, this word then begs that we interact with it, with this portion of scripture as a conclusion of a reasoning process that has been going on. Does that make sense? Everyone therefore, that means that we are coming to the conclusion of a reasoning process that the Lord has been engaging us in. This word then, therefore, demands that we infer to the previous section that the Lord has been dealing with. We are dealing here with the conclusion of what Jesus has been saying. And what has Jesus been saying? Hopefully your portions of Scripture... Your Bibles are open in Matthew 7. He has been saying in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. It is not good enough for you to know where the narrow gate is if you don't enter it. It's not good enough for you to come and observe people entering by the narrow gate. It is not good for you to usher people through the narrow gate if you remain on the outside. He has been saying, enter by the narrow gate. But more specifically, in verse 21, the, the, the closest context, he has been saying, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on me. He's saying, I've been telling you that a day is coming when if you stand before me and yours is a false profession that lacked in the expression of true faith, 
There'll be no difference between you and Balaam who prophesied. There'll be no difference between you and Caiaphas who prophesied. There will be no difference between you and Saul who prophesied. But it did no good to their soul. And last week we spent time asking ourselves the solemn question, how do people deceive themselves to the point of arriving at the judgment throne being unconscious hypocrites? And we said three things. One, a false assurance of salvation. And that is common today. You walk in front, you pray the preacher's prayer, then they tell you from now on you're born again and let no one ever make you doubt. And so even though you live like the devil incarnate because somebody told you you're born again and you should never doubt it, you walk into the day of judgment with your eyes wide shut and go to hell. A false sense of assurance is one reason. Another one is a lack of self-examination, whereas the scripture commands us to make our calling and election sure. Sometimes we think we are too big, too important to examine ourselves. After all, I prophesy. Why should I examine myself? And what I prophesy comes to be. Why should I examine myself and I am the pastor? Why should I examine myself and I'm the head of this household? And then we also saw that one other reason why people basically go into judgment day in this particular state here is because they confuse religious activity with having a proper relationship with Christ. You could have religious activity even good religious activity, like coming to church, and yet sadly go to hell. And we say it again, the people who would say, Lord, Lord, on the last day, are not atheists. They are not liberals. They are people who observed, looked at the gospel, and saw it was reasonable, assented to it, but they were not born again. And therefore, we must search ourselves. And if you have not searched yourself, I plead with you, not just once, but as a matter of continuous lifestyle. Search yourself. Make your calling and your election sure. Coming back then to today's sermon, the Lord says, everyone then who hears, he says these words of Mine, a possessive adjective. These are my words. In fact, my is placed first for emphasis. Everyone, therefore, who hears my words is generally the, the order in which it should be. It's placed first for the purpose of emphasis. We are dealing here with the words of God the Son. The words that God the Son says, these are my words. There is a possessive and personal element that he is communicating. His words 
help us to know who he is. It is a gift that God speaks to us. Or could we ascend into heaven to know who he is? Could we ascend into heaven to know his commands? No, it is God in his mercy condescending and bringing himself to our level, accommodating himself to our level. Have you ever spoken with a six-month-old child? Do you know what kind of language you speak with them? It's, it's, it's sort of gibberish, but the child sort of, you, you are accommodating yourself. You are telling them you love them and care for them while doodling with your tongue. God is accommodating himself in speaking with us, and so we need to see his words as an act of mercy. But when he says words that are mine, we need to realize that his words represent him. And like human beings, who can have a gap between what they say and who they actually are in terms of character, when we are dealing with the Lord, we need to realize that he is the God who cannot lie. The one who said that heaven and earth will pass away, but not his word, not an iota, not a dot. It is easier for him to do away with the entire Milky Way galaxy than for an iota or a dot in his word to drop to the ground. To despise or to reject the words of Jesus, the words that Jesus calls mine, is therefore to despise and to reject him also. Don't you think that if we did so, he has every right to take it very personally? He surely does. And the plural, these words, as used there, perhaps denotes not one class of saying, but the whole account, the whole amount of doctrine, the whole gospel, his entire message of the Sermon on the Mount. And then there is the use of the word will be like. And as I look at that word, friends, the tense is future. It is not is like. It is will be like. That tense is a future tense. Something in the future is envisaged. It is visualized. And what is envisaged and visualized in this parable, which has two examples, is the day of judgment. That's why I'm telling you that please be alert. The context we are dealing with touches on end time matters. On the day of judgment, the person who obeyed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ will be determined to be of the condition stated as wise. 
he will truly be known either for being a wise person or a foolish person on the day of judgment. The state of wisdom, which is related to obeying the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, will ultimately be known in the future. Of course, in the short term, in the present, the presence or the lack of wisdom may be seen, but the undisputed time when the presence or the lack of wisdom will be determined is, an, is a future event. You could deceive us to the very last day that you are wise. But on that particular day, if you are really not wise, if you are that person whom the Lord has put a label on their forehead, written full, it will be made evident. But having made these introductory observations, we still must ask the question, what is the unique focus of this context here in Matthew 7, 20? to27. I invite you to sweat this out for the reasons that I've already mentioned. This, this passage is treated with contemptuous familiarity. Many people come to this text and as we focus on it, we tend to think it is addressing us concerning the grounds of our salvation. And so we would say, even preach, that the wise man is the one who hears the gospel and trusts in Jesus for salvation. The foolish man, on the other hand, is the one who hears the gospel message, but then goes about, goes out, and builds on his own works as a ground of his salvation. Dear friends, that is a wonderful truth. And it is a truth taught in the Bible. But is that the truth that the Lord wants to bring to the fore of our, of our hearts in this context? The use of the words founded on the rock, built on the rock, causes us to quickly conclude, as I am proposing here, that we are dealing with grounds of our salvation. And we know that the ground of our salvation is Jesus Christ. He indeed is the rock of all ages. Belief in him as the way and the truth and the life is the only ground upon which any man, any woman, any child can be saved. But is that what we are dealing with here? Are we primarily dealing with the ground, the basis of salvation? Are we dealing with behavior that should accompany one who professes to have faith in Jesus? As we zoom into it, you will see that what we are dealing with is the question of obedience. 
And you'd see that underlined there in red in verse 24 and verse 26. We are not dealing with the ground of salvation. And we know that the ground of salvation is Jesus Christ alone. The subject here is the difference between the kinds of hearers of truth. Those who hear and do and those who hear and fail to do the will of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Bishop Wright, over a hundred years ago, writes this. I will quote, We must be careful in interpreting and explaining this parable that we do not lose sight of its proper scope and intention. It is surely not handling scripture honestly to tell people that the rock here is Christ and the man who builds on it, the true believer. That the foundation of earth or sand is false grounds for confidence, for justification, and the man who builds on it, the deluded Christian who trusts in them. All of this is excellent theology, but all of this is not the point in question. The point in question is, does this passage teach that lesson? And Ryle says, I answer unhesitatingly that it does not. The object of this parable is not to teach us the doctrine of justification that is taught elsewhere. And Pastor Murungi taking us through the introduction of Romans did an excellent job in teaching us justification, severally uh, defining the term. That sinful man is accepted as righteous in the Son of God only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed on them and received by faith. That is a glorious truth of the Bible. That the only rock upon which we can build if we hope to be accepted before God is the rock, Jesus Christ our Lord. Ryle concludes, the teaching of this passage is trying to expose the folly of Christian profession unaccompanied by Christian practice. And the certain ruin to which such profession must ultimately lead to if you persist in it. The intention of this passage is to expose to us the foolishness of saying, I am a Christian with our lips, and not obeying the Lord. And it tells us, if you persist in that particular path, then you are on a collision path with God. The Lord here is dealing with the person who hears the words of salvation. And having heard the words of salvation, the person likes those words. 
sees them as reasonable, chooses to be in this church and not a mosque somewhere or a temple somewhere. And that person even believes the words of God, ascends to the words of God, ascribes to them, becomes perhaps a church member. But then he or she does not put those words into practice in his daily experience, in his thinking life, in his speech life, in his work life, in his family life, in his social life, in his entertainment life. That is the person this context is focusing on the contextual focus. The wise man is the one who hears and does. The foolish man is the one who hears but does not practice. Obedience to the words of Christ here touches on expression of faith rather than acquisition of faith. We are dealing with the matter of expressing faith by our obedience rather than acquiring faith because of our obedience. If we do not obey the will of God, we are claiming we believe in him. And yet, at the same time, we attempt to mock him. We remember those who called Christ Lord and even dressed him in a gorgeous robe, saying, Hail the King of the Jews, while mocking him. Do you position yourself doing such a thing? We would say, I would never do such a thing. Who died? And yet by our actions, it's very easy to live our lives in a way that we are making an attempt at the impossible, because we do know God cannot be mocked. Scripture will not say God does not get mocked. That would mean he may occasionally be mocked. Cannot means it is impossible to succeed at mocking him. Hearing and doing are two things that God has joined together in his word. And so let no man put them asunder and attempt to put them asunder while entertaining the thought of entering heaven. Dear friends, it is a mercy that we hear God. It is a mercy that we hear God. You could not understand physics, chemistry, which are human languages. Do you, do you understand that if God chose to speak to you in a language you could not understand, you'd never be able to understand? But he has spoken to us in plain language, in our own language, given us scripture in English and Swahili and our various tribes. We don't have to learn Latin or Greek, or Hebrew, for us to know his word. It is a mercy. And the Lord says, blessed are those hears that hear, 
chapter 13, verse 16 and 17. That if we do not practice what we hear, then we are receiving his grace in vain. We are trampling on his grace, spitting on his grace. Is that what we would do and still enter heaven? If your hearing is not a means for your obedience, then what you're doing is you're making your bad situation worse. You are aggravating your disobedience. And to aggravate your disobedience, which is already bad, I mean the wrath of God abides on all human beings on account of sin until they are in Christ. Now, having had this means of grace, and then you disobey, is making a bad situation worse. Those who only hear the sayings of Christ and do not do them are going to be very sad on the day of judgment. To start the journey, fuel the car, pack your bags, say bye to the world, enter the car, get onto the highway, and then park your car on the highway before you get to your destination. Let us go to the second point. And the second point deals with the comparison. And I'm asking you, can you see the hearers being compared? There are similarities, there are differences. And we'll keep touching on both of these. See the similarities, they are very obvious. Those who hear, both hear the words of Christ. The two types of hearers in view here are hearing words that Christ describes as mine. Verse 24, the fool hears the, the wise man in verse 24 hears those words of Christ described as mine. And the fool likewise hears words of Christ that are not described in any lesser language than with that possessive adjective, mine. Both of these two groups of people, the wise hearer and the foolish hearer, are building a house. And when, when we think about a house, you're thinking about a place of refuge, a place of comfort, a place of sheltering, a place of hope because of security, a place where when you enter, you are hemmed within and protected from the harm that could come from without. So both are saying, I have a mansion in heaven. I have a place I am going to. Absent from the body and I will be present with the Lord. Both are saying that. The two houses built by these two types of hearers 
will both undergo a severe testing. But before we get to the severe testing, you'd notice that these houses would apparently look similar on the outside. The detailing, the finish, the size, the description could be the same. So that the person on this seat and the person on this seat could both be describing their houses and the exterior is the same. The purpose of the house is the same. When the wise man and the fool describes their house, it is the same in terms of the exterior. But then one of the builders, the wise one, the sensible, wise there, communicates sensibility. It communicates prudence. It communicates a person with understanding, whereas a foolish man, morose, you know the, the English word we get from that, communicates a moron an adjective that describes being extremely unwise and foolish. The foolish man does not deliberately choose to go out and look for sand to build on it. Rather, he displays a lack of diligence in seeking to lay the sound foundation. And I say this because of a similar account, the same account described there in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6, verse 47 to 49, the Lord says, Luke 6, 47 to 49, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house. Who did what? Who dug? deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So both of them build houses. On the exterior, it looks the same. But during the construction, one arrived on site with an excavator to remove the topsoil, looking for the bedrock, not just pieces of stones on the surface. The other one, instead of coming with an excavator, came to the construction site with a broom. And instead of digging, they swept, and then they built. It is no rocket science that the second one is an accident looking for a scene to occur. The two houses built by these two types of hearers will both undergo severe testing. The rain will fall on both of them. The floods will come against both of them. The winds will blow upon them. 
the rain, the floods, and the wind will beat both of them. Because that word there, beat, in verse 25, and beat, in verse 27, relates not just to wind, but it relates to the rain, the floods, and the wind. We've recently seen what's happened in Pakistan. Sad to see houses, big houses, villas, being swept by the flood. Now, these are two very strong forces of nature. And they are all beating upon the houses. Both houses are similar in the sense that they are going to be tested. The wise man, we are told in verse 25, is distinguished because of that present continuous indicative. He does them. It's not he did them or he occasionally will do them. There is a present continuity there that says the wise man is a person who carries out, puts to practice the commands of God as a lifestyle, not on Sunday only, not in church only, not on the Sunday when we have the Lord's Supper only. He does the commands of God, whether he is before men or not. The foolish man, on the other hand, does not do, does not put into practice the words of Christ. Let's think about floods, storms, and the winds being described here. I propose to you that this represents the final judgment. The day of judgment is in view here. And it is being painted as a day of great upheaval. It is a day that will search you out at your very depths. At your very depths. At your deepest depth. It is a day when everyone will be examined and examined down to their very roots. Do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself about your relationship to Jesus Christ if you are not obeying him. The upheaval, the combination here, rain, rivers, winds, and all of them beating is a picture of some very, very severe tests. Such a severe test that we are shocked if a house endures it, and we are going to see that at the end. And this is a test that cannot be avoided. You cannot opt out of this. This is not an elective, an optional extra. This is, and I'm avoiding, and part of the reason why I'm not saying this is earthly vicissitudes, 
is because here on earth, there are people who would be ungodly and they will never face what can be described as rains, winds, and storms. And yes, whereas here on earth, when we face the small-scale rains, winds, and storms, we really are seen to be either Christians or not. The ultimate place where people will have to face rain, wind, and storm is on the day of judgment. A test that you cannot afford, avoid. It will come on each one here, no matter who you are. And may I add that for some of us here, it may come very suddenly, allowing for no further preparation. There may be no meteorologists to tell you you have three more months to live. There may be no meteorologists to tell you you have this condition and with this kind of condition, as we have seen historically, unless you become an outlier, you have six months to live. For some people, they enter eternity just like that with no more room for you to buy an umbrella or a shower cape or whatever you'd need to deal with rain. There are troubles. The trouble here is both houses looked equally well to build, but at the judgment, we find out we find out something concerning the houses that is subterranean, something that cannot be seen with our naked eye because foundations are not on top of the ground, they are underground. But on the day of judgment, God testing our houses will reveal what fellow man could not see. I plead with you. I plead with you. Don't play around with the day of judgment. If you have been saying, Lord, Lord, with your lips, and yet disobeying his words, that is a blaring siren calling you to recognize that you are supposed to repent and turn to the Lord and obey him. As soon as you receive instructions from the Lord, you must fold your sleeves and busy yourself in obeying. He has told us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When is the last time you mourned? When is the last time you mourned over your sins? Today, this past week, the last one year, I can't remember that you have been sinning. And you see, this is sin. I have fallen short. 
of the standards of God who gave me life, who created me and so I owe my life to him, who gave me those commandments and so I owe him obedience, who will judge me and so I owe him accountability and yet I feel nothing. I just move on. I just move on. Is an act of either communicating you are ignorant or very unwell. Very, very unwell. If you are alive to who you are about to deal with, if you are alive to what is being described here as winds, floods, rains, you would mourn. And so we flee to Christ. You flee to Christ. You tell him, I can't keep that commandment. I can't keep it. And then he will save you if you repent of your sins, put your trust in his righteousness and his righteousness alone, and then he will strengthen you and return you back to obey that commandment. Let's conclude by looking at the final point. One event, two different actions, two consequences. One consequence is described in verse 24 as it did not fall. And that's introduced with that conjunction, but. It's like surprise. It did not fall. Alas, it did not fall. How? How can a house withstand all this? It did not fall. Alas, the house is standing. Praise the Lord. The house is standing. The way to stand in this surprising day, this day of great upheaval, the way to ensure you stand is to be in Jesus Christ. And being in Jesus Christ will give you the ability to obey. And if you obey him, then you're truly having a house that has been built on a foundation that will withstand the upheavals of the day of judgment. However, no matter how beautiful your profession is, verse 26, subjected to the upheavals that each one of us must undergo on the day of judgment. And some of us are so close to that day that we should stop being playful and playing church and pretending I'm a member of a reformed church. Yet you know behind the scenes you're living a life of sin. We must quit this. We must stop this. Put a proper price tag on your soul. It is your never dying soul. Scripture even says, what would it profit you to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? A minute, a second after you enter eternity, if somebody met with you, 
you will either be confused for an angel or the devil. You will either be so beautiful or so ugly. Don't play around with your soul. Don't play around with the words of Christ. They have the ability to strengthen us on that day. But the consequence for the one who plays around with the words of Christ, hears them, does not do them, is that his profession of faith, that profession of I have a mansion in heaven, will fall. And the Lord concludes his sermon on the mount in a very unsuiting way. Basically says, great was the fall of it. And unlike in verse 24, where he explains where the, the, good, the wise man's house stood, in verse 26, he doesn't even explain. Verse 24, we know it was built on the rock. But here he, he ends it. He ends the parallelism somewhat abruptly to ensure the emphasis is on the greatness of the fall. And that word great is megas, from where we would get the word mega. Great fall. Dear friends, as we rise up to sing the concluding hymn in a few seconds, I kindly request you. Please don't play around with the words of Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if you examine yourself and you see a practice of sin, stop assuring yourself that you are safe with Christ. The Lord has given commands, commands that are clear. How do you treat his church, for example? How do you raise your children, for example? Those are not commands of man. How do you attend to the Lord's day? Are those the words of man? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Is it your age mate who made that command? Dear friends, let us not deceive ourselves. Because a day is coming and is now nearer than when we first began. When the storm, the rain, and the floods will hit us. We thank God. Thank God that in the Lord Jesus Christ, all who have built on the foundation, because the everyone that started us off in verse 24 does not just touch on a few who built on the rock. Everyone who built on the rock will stand. Our God knows how to keep the righteous against judgment. You may be struggling. Keep struggling. Keep fighting. You may feel like you are walking at the very edge and about to fall into hell. Keep crawling towards life. Don't stop. Don't quit. The God of Lot who saved Lot out of Sodom, knows how to save the righteous. Keep on. But if you deceive yourself, then the Lord has 
non soothing words to say. The physician of our souls does not flatter his patients. <laughs>